Hello, everybody. I'm Dwayne Mancini, and welcome to another episode of MedTech Money brought to you by Project MedTech. If you need anything from us or would like to suggest a future guest, you can email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. For more information on Project MedTech, our events we host, our consulting and advisory services, and to sign up for our monthly newsletter, visit our website, www.projectmedtech.com, and follow us on LinkedIn. If you're enjoying this content, don't forget to check out our other podcasts by searching Project MedTech on your favorite podcast platform or by heading to our website. Project MedTech is an interview-style podcast focused on the MedTech industry where guests share stories, advice, pitfalls, trends, and innovations. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Galen Data. Galen Data is an FDA-compliant cloud for medical device manufacturers. The Galen Cloud provides a configurable platform for device-to-cloud connectivity that is compliant to FDA, HIPAA, and CE Mark standards. The company is ISO 13485 certified, and the product on AWS is High Trust certified as well. Founded by seasoned medical device professionals, the company's goal is to make medical device cloud connectivity available to all at a fraction of the cost while shaving months off the development timeline. Galen Data allows medical device companies to stay medical device companies and not become IT companies. In this episode, our host Giovanni Loricella and our guest Philippe Poletti at Truffle Capital discuss why your business plan should be able to fit on the back of your business card, his background in the space, why he started a venture capital firm in France, what they look for before making an investment, how their fund works, where they invest, the story of the artificial heart, and so much more. So without further ado, Giovanni's discussion with Philippe Poletti. Philippe, thank you very much for joining us here today. This is the MedTech Money podcast series powered by Project MedTech and sponsored by Lifeblood Capital. I'm very excited to have you on. I've been waiting for the Truffle Capital story for a while, and I've, I've been on site. I know your companies that you guys are building. Uh, you guys are having an amazing track record as well as history in the medical device industry. And we're going to get into who is and what is Truffle Capital and what you guys are doing, as well as yourself but also wanted to talk some mechanics around what it has or what it's like to be a medical device venture capitalist, especially in Europe. So those are the major topics that we're gonna talk about. And the reason why we're here is I have talked to MedTech entrepreneurs as well as investors like yourself from around the world. And I'm sitting in Florida right now and you're sitting in Paris. And what I've discovered over these conversations and years is that there is no silver bullet or specific formula, or even magic about how to raise or invest capital in medtech. So my goal here is to extract insights so that we can demystify this process and help medtech innovators like yourself, as well as others in this industry that we've been all part of for a while, benefit. And the audience is entrepreneurs and investors. And what I'd like to do is share your stories and advice so that we can help our listeners learn from you. And even more specifically, for those first-time founders or CEOs who have no clue of what lies ahead on this journey of raising capital. So I thought the best place to start is to learn from experienced professionals like yourself. So my very first question that I'd like to share with you and have your thoughts on are, in your opinion, what is the lifeblood of a medtech startup or what keeps startups alive? Well, there is no magic recipe, right? Uh, but uh, the first clue is you shouldn't start a medtech company unless you think it's radical innovation, which is going to change the life of patients and of uh, clinicians. It has to be daring. Otherwise, you'll just be uh, me too company and uh, you'll be too slow and bigger company uh, will uh, develop better products than yours. So then in your history, and we'll get into what that looks like, but in your history of investing in med tech startups and also creating companies, what's the hardest part about making investments into med tech startups? 
in your opinion? Well, the hardest part is to know too much about the field, uh, because if you knew every difficulty you will face, uh, you will stop uh, early on. So you need to be, uh, of course, knowledgeable about the field, about the indication you need to treat and so on. But you need to be a little naive as well so that you have the stamina to <laughs> go for it. I, I like that piece of advice. And once again, in, in your experience on investing particularly, what's the best and also the worst piece of advice that you've received on investing in startups that you've heard from others, maybe counseled or advised? Sure. Well, you know, we're a little different from uh, most venture capitalists. And in fact, I don't see myself as a venture capitalist. I see myself with my team as entrepreneurs who benefit from managing uh, venture funds so that we have enough cash to start and grow companies ourselves uh, for a while. Uh, the two best pieces I'd heard uh, that 35 years ago from Don Valentine, who was the founder of Sequoia Capital, Sand Hill Road in Menlo Park, California, were two things. Philip, a good business plan fits on the back of your business card. Why was he telling me that? Probably I was talking too much, too many details. And at the end, what matter in the business plan is uh, what is your mission? Uh, is it a big medical need? What is the technology, the IP, and the team? And you don't need to get in too many details would be false. If you try to write a business plan five, seven years down the road, it's wrong. So you need crisp ideas on the key topic. And then you know it's going to be a difficult, long journey like crossing the Atlantic Ocean on a small boat. Uh, the second piece of advice he had given me was I invest within uh, 50 miles of his office, right? Which was to say, if you want to be an active investor in a project, in a company, you need to be involved. So if the company is too far away, even with Zoom, which didn't exist at the time, uh, you'll make a lot of uh, mistakes. And then what about the worst? I mean, have you ever heard of a piece of advice that was told to you by either other investors or whatever it may be? And, and you were put it to the sure. test? When I started with Airbus and uh, Alain Carpentier, famous surgeon, Carmat, to develop the most advanced total artificial heart, I'd heard a number of people say, oh, there is no market for a total artificial heart. So that was very wrong. There was no market because there was no product to meet the huge medical need. Fortunately, we don't listen too much to negative views. And in fact, uh, radical innovation for me, one definition of a radical innovation, a good project, is when 95% of the experts or pseudo-experts say, it's too risky, it will never work, there is no need, that's a good sign uh, you are on track for a good project. Love that. And we are going to come back to a line later on that you mentioned to me earlier, that radical innovation is less risky than marginal innovation. And I loved when you shared that. So we will get into it. I'll save that for a minute. But I want to get to a question on you, something specific to you, Philippe. What's a book that you would recommend our audience to read and why? And it could be on any topic. You know, since I'm based in Paris, I'll choose uh, Jules Verne, right? two famous books, which were uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, and his other famous uh, journey to the center of the earth. Uh, he was a visionary, of course, right? Uh, science fiction and so on. But also, you know, talking about difficult journeys to discover new things, uh, which uh, other people would never do or dare to do. And that's a lot about uh, innovation and going for medtech, biotech, or other complex uh, projects. So I would recommend very strongly these two books. 
So then, however you want to answer this one, because you you think of yourself more as an entrepreneur rather than a venture capitalist, but I would like your take on it anyway. From your perspective, what's the position description of a venture capitalist, and what's the biggest challenge a venture capitalist? Well, have? I don't want to give you one answer because what different from others who are very good venture capitalists. So uh, you have all kind of venture capitalists. You have those who like to invest in existing companies which are already well advanced, those who like to invest as a group of several venture capitalists. Uh, if it succeeds, they can say, it's thanks to me. If it fails, they can say, well, I was not the only one to make a big mistake. Uh, so, you know, it's not too much of our style. Uh, we like to be founders of our companies. And uh, if it works, we can say it's thanks to us. If it fails, uh, we have to say it's our fault uh, as well. So uh, our definition of a venture capitalist is someone who is going to invest early, but for the long time, you know, not a quick win uh, in the company and contributes strongly to making the right decisions on which project to pursue, how to make sure there is early on a very strong management team, because uh, to put a product on the market is as difficult as many barriers to entry for a small company as it is for Medtronic or Sanofi. So you'd better have a very strong team very early on, because mistakes are very expensive and often you cannot recover from a mistake if you have the wrong engineering, if you choose the wrong indication, wrong regulatory pass, wrong manufacturing and supply chain and so on. So that's where uh, with our team, we can help a lot because uh, collectively we have hundreds of years of operating experience, uh, developing medical devices, developing drugs, and uh, it doesn't work all the time, but certainly building very strong team, having uh, choosing the right indication, relying a lot on clinicians as well. You always need to have your thumb on the pulse of what clinician and patient needs, enough cash, patience, and a little bit of luck as well. And you see it from both sides as a venture capitalist as well as an entrepreneur. But the one thing I, I love, this hyper-focused audience of this podcast is meant for the entrepreneurs to listen from how VCs or investors think. Yep. Also hear war stories from other entrepreneurs who have raised capital. So that's ultimately who we're talking about. And, and I would love your perspective on this because entrepreneurs who are raising capital, they go out and they figure out that they need to go talk to venture capitalists because that's who has the money for right now, for whatever reason. And they put their decks together and they send it in an email or they show up on site, whatever it may be, or meet them at the conference. But they never really truly understand what happens on the other side of a venture capital firm, right? They ask them for money. They hope that they find a good partner to help them, but they never really want to know the pain points or some of the, the challenges that VCs have to deal with when they're making these investments. And it also, you know, create some of the challenge of why VCs don't invest sometimes, right? For timing, whatever it may be. So in your perspective, what's one of the biggest challenges of a venture capitalist that entrepreneurs simply don't understand? Well, entrepreneurs need to understand that venture capitalists raise cash from other investors that need to make a capital gain from investing in the venture fund. Uh, which is to say that the investment in the company, in the 10 or 15 companies the fund uh, will invest into, needs to return 20-25% net capital gain per year, which is to say that you need to make 2 to 4x total return on the total investment which is to say that out of 10 to 15 companies, three to four need to be big winners 
uh, returning maybe 10 to 15x and the other companies returning uh, 0.5 to uh, 2x. So we do not invest just to return cash. Otherwise, you know, I would have chosen another uh, area in my professional career. We invest uh, because we have a passion to say thanks to the products developed by the companies we form or we help, uh, patients will live much better, clinicians will practice medicine in a different way, and sometimes we use our expertise to help the planet to cl be cleaned up from uh, plastics. So entrepreneurs need to understand uh, also uh, that uh, it's not philanthropy venture capitalists, and that's why sometimes they'll get no's from investors who will say, you know, this project doesn't fit the potential for uh, our money and return on investment. Um, and uh, that they, they need also to understand the value of time, which is a big issue, right? We all know the uncertainty of developing products, which can be much longer between the time of investment and a product being on the market or another company acquiring uh, the company. And the fact that the limited partners who invest in venture funds often have a little, little patience. So seven to 10 years is a long time uh, for investors in venture fund. And often it doesn't fit with the cycle of development of a startup from inception to exit. Thank you for explaining that. And I, I, I'm sure a lot of entrepreneurs didn't think about that before. And that's why I wanted them to know what challenges that you guys have to face that they don't have to incorporate into their business plan. So thank you for sharing that. I have a little fun with this question. You've seen a lot from both on entrepreneur side, as well as the VC side that we talked about. But if we stick on the VC side and how capital flows, if you had a magic stick and could fix anything, fix it or just make it easier or whatever you want to call it. If you had your magic stick, what would you change in the investment process into MedTech? Well, first I would get rid of Vladimir Putin, who has <laughs> destroyed uh, the recent good cycle of uh, biotech and medtech. You know, it has been a very violent cycle where uh, COVID pushed uh, healthcare, biotech, medtech up. And then since February of uh, last year, it went down and the valuation, the IPOs and so on have uh, gone down. So I'm sure a lot of people would uh, use the same stick if uh, they could, but there is no magic stick Right. The fundamentals are very good for biotech and, and medtech. So we should look more at the positives and where there are negatives, you know, don't focus too much on the negatives and just work a, a little harder and keep your optimism. Love that. I'm a big optimist. I'm a fan of it, too. So thank you for that. Um, once again, back to you, very similar to the book question. We And we're going to get into the story of you being a venture capitalist and an entrepreneur of how you started these companies, which I'm, I know, and you even mentioned the word passion, so I'm sure that you're filled with it. But imagine if the world was a, a different place and, and money was a limiting factor and you didn't need it to survive or have a great life that you imagined. If you weren't a venture capitalist, what would you be doing right now if there were no limiting factors? Well, I, I, when I went into medicine, I was wondering if I should go into politics. Fortunately, I didn't do that. But as an uh, uh, entrepreneur, I influenced a few good policy fronts without going directly into politics. And uh, I wondered I, if I should go into uh, astrophysics, which was fascinating to me. But... Uh, I would do it again, the same going to medicine first, because when you are an MD, you can do a lot of things in your life. Um, I think it's a very good school for business 
being an MD and treating patients, right? Recognizing a problem, defining solutions and treatment, monitoring if your treatment is effective or not. This is the basis of, of business and, uh, and management. So I'm glad I did that. The only thing I'm sorry about is that time flows too quickly and I'd like to have another 200 years uh, doing what I'm doing. Very good. And this next question, I'm actually excited. Like I mentioned, I, I, I know you guys. I've helped work with you guys. I know the companies. Um, I've been following Truffle Capital for a long, long time. But I ask this question to all my guests. And beyond the obvious, I mean, I am, I'm a personal fan of Truffle, right? And it's been exploding on this global food scene of truffles everywhere. But what does the name of your company mean, Truffle Capital? And is there a story behind that name? Well, uh, you know what a truffle is, right? It's a yeah. little mushroom, uh, which is difficult to find um, near oak trees uh, in the south of France and so on, uh, where you typically use dogs with a good nose to find those very expensive uh, truffles. So that's what it, where it's coming from, right? A good project, difficult to find, difficult to grow, very expensive uh, to mature. And the other reason is uh, Bernard Louis, my partner, and I both have a house in Perigord, which is the land of uh, truffles. <laughs> Very cool. Very cool. Well, thank you for finally telling me that story. I want to go into, you've alluded to some of your background, but all of us have been listening to you answer these questions and getting inside your head with some of the philosophy. But who are you, Philippe? Where do you come from? Where are you now? How have you built your life? Whether you want to go as far back as you want, all the way through academics, through going through medical school. So I'm, I'm not going to bore you with uh, this, but basically I'm a Parisian. I did my uh, medical uh, studies in uh, Paris. I was a resident in hematology and immunology. I went to Pasteur Institute uh, to graduate in immunology and virology. And then I decided at the end of my residency, I'd been a co-founder of a small early biotech company in France, but I wanted to go to California. Uh, so I selected uh, a great lab, uh, which accepted me as a, a postdoc fellow, uh, John Boothroyd's lab in Stanford University. And, uh, you know, a lot of people feel they are not entrepreneurs and so on. But as you know, if you transplant a French into Silicon Valley in this vibrant environment that was in uh, 1986, you become uh, an entrepreneur. And uh, at the time, my neurons were better functioning than now. I had uh, the, the luck to invent a patent, which was, I still think it is the second highest revenue generating patent for Stanford in life sciences, where I invented a gene amplification method using reverse transcriptase. It was two years after Karen Mullis' uh, PCR uh, invention. And that allows me uh, through small royalties from Stanford to early in life decide that I could do what I wanted, which was to start companies, and uh, to be an uh, entrepreneur. So I'm very grateful uh, for my great days in uh, Stanford. And then I spent 13 years in California. Then after the 2000 uh, crack, I came and with two children with, to decide whether they would be fully American in Silicon Valley or come back to France. We came back to France and we did well for the children. My uh, daughter is a pediatrician and my son of movies and also I thought uh, staying in California you know you had many uh, venture capitalists entrepreneurs I would not make uh, a big difference and that's where um, my thoughts about going into politics played a role saying you know this old country of France uh, this old Europe which lacks entrepreneurship innovation maybe I can make a little difference in France uh, and that's where uh, I decided to form uh, Truffle Capital and then to say, uh, let's start a, a good number of companies. Uh, but with this California spirit, which I learned in California uh, and which I tried to uh, brought to France, still with a French flavor. 
So this next question is who you, well, we, we, we found out who you are, which is bleeding right into Truffle Capital since you found it. And in 2019, I saw this article talking about how you raised a startup fund called the Biomedtech Startup Fund of 250 million euros. And if anyone's been really paying attention to what Philippe and I have been discussing, there's this unique blend between you actually being a venture capitalist, but you truly being an entrepreneur. And you really do play both sides simultaneously. So my question is, what is Truffle Capital? So we now know who you are, but what is Truffle Capital? If you could tell the world truly what you are. So Truffle Capital is a private venture capital management company uh, where uh, my two partners and I are the owners, uh, which means we can make our decisions. We don't need to ask tons of people, committees, and so on, uh, the blessing to invest or, or not to invest. And over the years, we have raised a number of uh, venture capital fund. You were mentioning the 2019 fund. We are raising another uh, fund, Meteor, for which we have done a first closing, and we'll do another one before uh, summer. And uh, we are uh, a little boutique, right? Our goal is not to be the biggest management company. Our goal is to continue to be able with our 25 people in the team, our many uh, consultants and serial entrepreneurs, board members, to do what we love to do, which is to say there is a big medical need. We are going to start one or two companies toward this goal, either from existing intellectual property we source in uh, uh, American universities or European universities, or start from scratch saying, we start the company, we give it the name, we assemble a team and we go for it. So uh, that's what we do. Uh, we start about uh, five, six companies per year. Uh, we have under management always uh, about 15, 20 companies. Some will take public, some will sell, some will do partnership with, uh, some will fail and stop the companies uh, early on. Most of our companies are based in France because we know extremely well the ecosystem. We benefit from a lot of large grants from the French government uh, that likes our daring uh, project. We do a few investment in Belgium, Switzerland, and so on. And that's what uh, I think will continue hopefully until I'm 93 years old and until our younger people push me out saying, Philippe, you have done your time. Uh, let us uh, do as we like. Very good. Very good. And, and just for black and white clarity on that one, it's very clear that you do start companies, but you just mentioned that you do make investments in Switzerland or Belgium, et cetera. Is it true that Truffle Capital, beyond starting companies, also makes traditional style venture capital investments into externally developed companies? So we are doing it a little bit, a little bit more now. Uh, we recently invested in Celayon in Belgium, which is a clinical stage company, cell therapy company for acute uh, liver failure. Uh, so we'll do a little bit of that, but keeping our initial DNA of being founders and growing a company. So our new fund, Meteor, will invest in the best companies that we started for, with the early stage funds. We'll do some spin-off from large companies uh, and then having spin-off who are individualized, uh, where we... Um, uh, structure the management team and so on. And uh, some uh, companies like Celayon uh, will be the new lead investors in these companies, which may have had a problem in their clinical trial design management team and, and so on. Very good. And, and going back to the 2019 fund, and you said that you're now raising a secondary fund. I wanted to get involved into, you mentioned the word timing early on, um, but also this nuance between, and help me out with this definition. Do you can, even though you're making external investments a little bit more these days, as you mentioned, do you walk a very fine line between being a incubator versus an actual VC fund? 
Well, well, not an incubator in that we don't stop at uh, inception and seed finances, financing. For us, we start companies, we grow them through preclinical stage, clinical trials, and several companies we have brought to commercial stage. So I would say we're um, a business builder from inception to commercial stage in medtech and to late stage clinical trials in biotech. Very good. And so this leads me to where we were talking earlier about some of these fund economics, right? You mentioned seven or 10 years in medical devices sometimes, but this is more of the, the theoretical things that we'll be discussing. So when we think about a venture capital firm, a traditional fund is 10 years. I believe you mentioned earlier, it could be extended out several years, maybe 15, but typically speaking, it's 10 years. And like you mentioned, venture capitalists will go out and they'll raise a round of capital or a fund from external investors that fundamentally, this venture capital fund that's being formed with their money is their own diversification of their financing, which ultimately they need to see a return on investment, right? This is not philanthropic or only impactful. They they ultimately need to see a return. So with the 10-year fund, you come up with a thesis as a venture capitalist of, I'm going to take your money and I'm going to invest it in this, this, and this, because this is my, my expertise of which I can hopefully provide a return. When we talk about medical device and even certainly drugs, these development cycles are long, especially with game-changing, not marginal innovation, but game-changing innovation. So how does, talk to me about the, the timing and the rationale between the 10-year fund, but also being a business builder from inception and building these companies along the way. Like how does that return ultimately happen over those 10 years when you're getting in that early? Yes. So biotech, the cycle of development of a drug is longer than the cycle of development of a medical device. Typically, medical device, what you want to do is from the initial idea, you want to be in the clinic in, let's say, four years, you know, which is aggressive and doable, and then to have uh, your first in man and then your pivotal trial, which overall could last three years, three and a half years, and then a registration process, CMARC in Europe, 510K or PMA in the US. Uh, which may last six months to 18 months. Now, what is the time where you can hope some liquidity for your investment? Either through the stock market, usually the IPO is not the time the investors like Truffle will exit, because if we do an IPO and say to the market, great company, but we want to sell our stock, that's not a very good signal uh, to new investors, but it's a path to building liquidity. And if you have a good news flow after the IPO, clinical trial results, then uh, the volume of trading on the stock market will increase and the historical investors, including us, can start to sell uh, stock progressively. Uh, you can do secondary offering, which may be a time where you can sell big block of stock while remaining a shareholder of the company. The other path to liquidity is, of course, selling the company. So often I would say my left brain doesn't want to sell the company because it's a pity to be in France called the startup nations. But then you have the Medtronic, Boston Scientific, Abbott, Johnson & Johnson uh, buying the companies and getting the fruits of success of your innovation. Uh, on the other hand, because often the stock market is not powerful enough to sustain the growth of a medtech company towards commercial stage, launching the products in Europe, in the US and Asia, you'll be forced to sell the company. So that's a little bit what you have to uh, do arbitrage for. But the common feature to all of that is you need to develop successfully a product which will meet the regulatory barrier, which can be priced and reimbursed at a high pricing. 
uh, generate high gross margin. And you need a product which you have industrialized with the right uh, cost of goods, quality, and scale so that you have a real product. If you meet these criteria, and of course, if clinicians have said great clinical trial results, the FDA, the AMA uh, say great clinical trial results, the payers say will pay a high price, then you'll get an exit one way or another. Very good. And with the, you alluded to it <laughs> earlier with uh, with your magic stick of uh, Vladimir Putin. And I want to go back to the European medical device regulations. You know, last February, as you mentioned, things have changed from an, uh, a pending war. Um, but we also have these things called medical device regulations that have been implemented since May of 2021 and that were even postponed for a year. And at the time that you and I are talking right now, there's talking about even further delay, but there's something more than just tactics of what the MDRs have or have not done right now. They've caused this cultural and industry change of, of some things, right? And some things have been affected more than others. So my question for you is, how have the European medical device regulations or the EU MDRs affected European med tech innovation and being a medtech venture capitalist in Europe? Yeah. Well, before medtech was not enough regulated in, in Europe, and uh, you could do uh, limited open-label clinical trials where you would define the statistical analysis plan retrospectively and so on. So basically, shitty data, right? and get an approval or a C mark. Now that has changed uh, for the better. Uh, yes, it, it's going to take time uh, for the notified body to get experience uh, and so on. But we had the benefit from coming from a biotech pharmaceutical background, where, as you know, regulations and uh, clinical trial design were much more rigorous. So to us, it's not too much of a big surprise. It's true that in the last few years, the US regulations uh, were softer than before, right? Uh, and the European one went the other direction, which is why, you know, as a med tech company, you need to say, I'm going to develop my products for Europe, for the US, for Asia, and be uh, adaptative to where do you think which countries uh, you should go first for your first in man or your pivotal trials. And uh, then, you know, you'll have some difficulties somewhere, some luck elsewhere. You do not want to lock you early on into a single territory. And I don't think I've ever asked the question myself as black and white as I'm about to now, but have the European medical device regulations affected more of new innovation or clinical trials and commercialization in Europe? Well, I think it has affected, you know, all products, all fashioned uh, type of, of medtech more. Uh, the highly innovative products, I don't think have been negatively impacted because they were using high standards for their clinical trial, for their manufacturing uh, to address the US, Europe, and uh, Asia. So certainly there are some countries in Europe uh, where uh, setting up your clinical trials is faster than others. Uh, I'm a little ashamed to say that France is behind Spain and Italy and the UK and Germany in a number of clinical trials run in biotech and mentech, although there has been some good progress in the last uh, two or three years. And uh, that's why where, when you are a company, what you are looking for for uh, the choice of your clinical trial site and countries is, of course, quality of centers and investigators, right? Very important because if the trial doesn't go well, you're not going to blame the centers or the investigators. People will say, no, it's the device. And uh, the learning curve to use a new device uh, is not insignificant. So you need centers who are very skilled, uh, want to be trained on animal models, uh, want to select rightfully 
the patients and so on. So you want center selection, then regulatory path, which country is going to be fast enough and predictable enough? Because if you lose six months to run your first in man, that's a big problem for a uh, young company. You want to assemble KOLs from Europe and the US because the practice of healthcare, the view on uh, new products will be somewhat different between the US and some European countries. And you need to understand uh, the different views so that you can design your product and your trials uh, appropriately taking into account all of these good opinions uh, from KOLs. And early on, you want to understand the market access uh, path and the pricing and the reimbursement and the competition. And many companies are too focused on injury and early stage clinical trial, and then say, oh, let's think about the market, the pricing and so on. And often you can make big mistakes there. We mentioned this line earlier and you actually mentioned it to me on a previous call. And I, I loved it because it speaks to what Truffle is, but I really wanna flush this, this line out and get your perspective on it. What do you mean by radical innovation is less risky than marginal innovation? It sounds opposite of what most people think. Well, it's very true. What I mean by that is radical innovation means a very novel product which does not exist to solve an unmet medical need. If you can do this, you'll have very strong patents, right? Which will prevent much bigger companies to compete against you as long as the duration of the patent is sufficient. And if you generate clinical trial results where people, uh, when you present or the investigator presents the data, people say, wow, that's truly a difference. Well, then you, are, you have a clear path to getting FDA approval, EMA approval, a high pricing by the payers because the patients, the clinicians, the payers will say it makes a big difference. So radical innovation is less risky because if you follow this path, even if you are a small company, you can get 20, 30% market share against very big company because you change the life of patients and clinicians. So there is a little caveat in what I'm saying is the uncertainty of the R&D cycle, of course, and radical innovation sometimes is longer takes much more cash. But if you have the right team in the management, in the R&D, enough money, a little patience, you will make it happen. And speaking of radical innovation, which you guys help bring as far as it's gone to date, you mentioned it earlier on. I want to know the, the case study of Carmont, right? You said the most advanced total artificial heart, and, and there was this need, you helped start the company. What's Truffle Capital's story with Carmont? Yeah. Uh, so first, I knew well the field of transplantation from uh, my days in the US. And uh, Alain Carpentier is one of the most brilliant uh, cardiac surgeons in the last uh, 50 years. He had invented the Carpentier Edwards heart valve, uh, which were made of pericardium, so biological valves, uh, which allowed patients to live very well with uh, much less anticoagulants than mechanical uh, valves. And his dream was to say, why not develop uh, an artificial heart? So his brilliant idea was to say, I'm going to go and see Airbus chairman and say, help me with your engineers who know how to develop planes, satellites, missiles, because I want to develop something very difficult, which is an autonomous heart, which will accelerate, decelerate, last years without being able to fix it like a satellite. You launch it, you are not going to fix it uh, the next month. 
And uh, the uh, Airbus uh, uh, chairman was a, a brilliant entrepreneur who said, okay, I'm going to give you not cash, but uh, 10, 15 engineers to work with ULA a few years. But then in 2007, uh, Airbus was uh, trying to launch the A380, you know, the big planes, the largest. Uh, and uh, they didn't want the new management uh, newspaper to say Airbus is unable to manufacture the A380 and is wasting time in medicine uh, with an artificial heart. So they decided to stop the project. So at that time, I met uh, Jean-Claude Cadudal, uh, the vice president of Airbus, uh, Alain Carpentier. And I immediately, looking at what had been done, it was a, a very early prototype. I said, you know, I'm going to do it uh, with them. Of course, we did some due diligence. Uh, I had a few arguments with Alain Carpentier, who said, we don't need to run animal studies. I said, you know, I think the FDA will want animal studies. He said, well, I'll teach the FDA what to do. And I said, I'm not sure you are going to teach the FDA what to do. We'll have to uh, do animal studies, which we, of course, did. And uh, Alain Carpentier wanted to say, I'm going to be the CMO, the CEO, everything. And I said, I don't think so. Uh, you are going to be the chairman of the Scientific Clinical Advisory Board, but we are going to hire uh, a CEO who is coming from the medtech industry because there are a lot of specifics to the medtech industry that even brilliant engineers or clinicians uh, will ignore. So that's how we, we got going. You know, there was no 300-page business plans. Uh, we did the spin-off of all the know-how and of 13 engineers. And I wanted the engineers to be employed by CAMAT, not to be employed by the EADS Airbus, so that they would get the spirit of entrepreneurship. But we also kept Airbus as a shareholder. Uh, they, they were ready to give me 100% of the shares to travel. We said, no, no, we want Airbus to continue to be involved so that they reinvested, invested in the IPO. So it was a terrific journey with a lot of difficulties. Uh, the early patients uh, died after we, a few weeks, after a few months. Industrialization was especially uh, difficult. Uh, we decided to take uh, the company public in 2010. 10, which was early. Uh, it was um, uh, a quick decision in this office because one of the large uh, uh, banks in France publicly stated that Carmat was going to run out of cash and was in difficulty and so on. And the French newspaper, the French Wall Street Journal was going to run a piece the next day, they called me and say, Philip, we run a, a piece that Carmat is uh, in uh, jeopardy. What can you say? So uh, I waited uh, uh, a few seconds. I said, I'll give you a scoop. We're going to uh, list Carmat uh, and Euronext. You're first to know we'll do an IPO. So they run a good story on the IPO, which was a success. And we did a secondary offering and so on. Uh, so. Uh, and we run clinical trials and so on. So I'm very proud, of course, that uh, the Carmat Heart is uh, on the European market. And uh, I think Carmat will be world leader because there is no one else with such a heart. But the greatest thing is when we got feedback from patients saying, you know, it's not the Carmat Heart anymore. This is my heart now. Wow. And, and that is radical innovation, because to your point in the story that you just told, there's nothing like it. And you are literally the first company to be that far along with developing the world's artificial heart, first artificial heart. It's not the first artificial heart. It's the first total artificial heart, uh, which is a bioprosthesis fully automated. Wow. You know, there were previous hard but very inconvenient, noisy, not adapting to physiology and so on. And uh, uh, it meets a big need because only 5% of patients be, with B ventricular failure will have the chance of getting a heart transplant because fortunately not enough 
people die in car accidents. So within in 20 years, getting your artificial heart will be, you know, as uh, trivial as uh, go, getting an orthopedic uh, uh, fix. Well, a lot more than fingers crossed on making that dream come true. There's a lot of people waking up every day to make that dream come true. So um, the next one is going back to more business. I, I love talking about the radical innovation and the Karmat stories because fundamentally that's what this industry is building is medical innovation to further healthcare. But going back to the business side of it, and you sit on the venture side as well as the entrepreneurial side, and especially when you're looking at those entrepreneurs who reach out to you as Truffle or even your awareness of other venture capital firms who get approached by entrepreneurs. What's the biggest mistake that you more often see from entrepreneurs who are raising capital from venture capitalists? Or, yeah. yeah, meaning like in other so words. What, you need a product which may not at the initial time cross all the dots, right? But when you project yourself five or seven years down the road, the project needs to fulfill uh, all the dots, which is when the product comes to market, will the patent life be long enough and the patent breadth be broad enough? Because if not, then you'll have been a pioneer but the value of your products will not be high because others will be able to uh, do the same. Second, is the indication you are pursuing uh, sufficiently broad in terms of number of patients and, uh, and market size? You know, sometimes companies say, oh, I'm going to pursue a niche market, small indication, because there is uh, a lack of competition. No, of course, it's nice to be able to fulfill indication where there are a few patients as well, right? But if you are going to spend a lot of time, effort and money in developing a product, you'd better have a big market in front of you. So it's better to take 5% of a $10 billion market than 50% of a 100 uh, million uh, market. Then uh, you need to be able to see that you can demonstrate safety and efficacy with a reasonable number of patients. So what is nice in medtech versus biotech is with your first in mind of 10 to 20 patients, you'll have a good idea if you have a products uh, which is safe and uh, provide the efficacy you are looking for. Uh, whereas with a drug candidate, you may wait for several hundred patients, phase 2B, phase 3, to have this. And then your pivotal trial, hopefully, is 100, 200, 300 patients. So that's a reasonable uh, plan. And you need also, when you make the design of the product, to think about cost of goods. Because if you have a great product, <coughs> which cost of goods sorry, is much too high, you will not have a viable business. So all of these you need to think about. It's not sufficient to say it's a great innovation. You need all the other uh, aspects. And while we're, while we're thinking about more on, on the VC side, um, I always like making this interesting comparison where we talk about like you have had to reach out to limited partners and raise funds for Truffle Capital. We talk about how arduous or difficult it is for entrepreneurs to raise capital from venture capitalists, right? For all the reasons that you just mentioned, you have to have a great story that fully checks out as to why it's going to be a valuable proposition. But not all innovation is that. And there's a lot of entrepreneurs who struggle raising money. Venture capitalists have to raise money from institutional limited partners or limited partners. From your perspective, what's more difficult? And, and what are some of those nuances? Like, what's the difference between a, an entrepreneur raising for their med tech product company versus, for example, Truffle Capital raising from limited partners and that, that action? Uh, 
You know, it's very similar, right? And uh, I don't like to raise money. So I sympathize uh, with uh, CEOs, CFOs who have to raise uh, money as well. I much better spend my time uh, investing, building companies and so on. But, you know, of course, it's a, it's a necessity. So I think you need to tell the true story. You don't want to paint uh, the dream story. It doesn't exist. You know, for instance, some people in the immunological space who come uh, and see me and say, oh, our product is going to reset the immune system. I say, come on, uh, stop the... Uh, tell me your mechanism of action, the results, the science, and so on. So be truthful about what you have, what you don't know, the uncertainty about the development plan. Have a credible story. And the credible story is uh, people who say, you know, this, we don't have a clue on this level of mechanism of action, this design uh, phase in the engineering of the device is very difficult and so on. These are credible stories. So people who anticipate the difficulties uh, are much more credible than people who are going to say, oh yeah, we, it's going to work, uh, no problem. Do you think there's any nuances or, or level of difficulty raising money for a product versus a venture fund, like a service? Like when you, because for example, venture capitalists invest money into companies, right? But they don't actually make anything themselves. So when they're pitching to limited partners, they're saying, this is what we're going to do with your money versus the entrepreneur who's pitching to the venture capitalist saying, this is the product. Do you want to invest in this opportunity? It's true that uh, raising a venture fund, uh, it depends who are you are talking to. So a lot of limited partners in venture fund do not care too much about healthcare, biotech, medtech, right? They care about the numbers. Tell me when you return the money and uh, the probability you'll make a 10, 20, 30% annual return, which to me is a little frustrating because you know I, I prefer to talk to people who care about return investment, but also improving the health of uh, patients. So for companies, most of them will talk to an increasingly venture capitalist who are competent in the field of medtech or biotech, which is to their benefit because uh, you know sometimes they'll get no, it's painful, but they'll get no from people who can explain why they said no. And if they can convince uh, professional skilled uh, venture capitalists, that's a big plus for their uh, company. Here's my last question. And I want to say thank you very much for sharing all this insight thus far. My last question for you is, you're a physician and you look at innovation differently than people who aren't physicians. You can see things and think through things differently. In your perspective, from both sides, venture capital, as well as being an entrepreneur, what value add or benefit does a physician have over other forms of entrepreneurs and investors? Well, I think, you know, we don't have all the answers, of course, but we know better what a patient is, how they think, and what colleagues, clinicians, surgeons, physicians need and how they think. So it's not something you learn in books, right? It's something you have learned in hospitals, caring for patients. So, uh, you wouldn't want to have only physicians, right? MDs making decisions. And in our team, we have engineers, pharmacies, uh, people who have operated uh, pharma, medtech companies, and so on. And collectively, I think we can have a, a better uh, approach. But uh, the benefit of MDs is caring about the end result, which is having a product which changed the life of patients. And that's uh, very valuable to make uh, decisions. And when times are difficult for companies, maybe uh, you will not give up. And what you learn in medicine, right, is that uh, you shouldn't give up 
on uh, a treatment or caring of, for a patient until you know it's uh, impossible. So that's what uh, developing a company is about. Don't give up the difficult time. There will be difficult time and maybe success is down the road. I couldn't think of a better note to leave off on. So Philippe Pouletti, this is the founder and CEO of Truffle Capital. This has been an absolutely incredible story and I, we covered more bases than I expected. So thank you so much for your time. This is the MedTech Money podcast series where we demystify raising and investing capital. Thank you so much, Philippe. Thank you very much, Javeli. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at info at Thanks for listening and have a great day.